Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are unworthy to approach you because you alone are perfect. We praise you for your justice and your righteousness. Lord, your word is clear that you will bring evil to justice and you will punish those who have acted rebelliously. We praise you that your judgments are just, even when we fail to understand them. And we cry out along with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Not because we question you, but because we long for your return. We also cry out, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Lord, forgive us for acting in our ignorance and unbelief. We've acted foolishly and taken the side of the unjust and the evil in this world. We have participated with the systems and kingdoms of this world that are in open rebellion against you and your authority as the creator. For the sake of your name and for your glory, may our humble repentance and faith in Jesus be acceptable in your sight. God, you are good, and it is your kindness that draws us to repentance. Increase our faith in you this week. God, we are still troubled by the world, and we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit to endure. We pray specifically for Living Water Church in Vancouver and Pastor Dave Leandri. We pray that you would strengthen that church as they proclaim the good news of the kingdom in their community. We pray that fear would be removed and a hopeful expectation of your salvation would be evident in that congregation. And Father, we pray now for the members of mission. We pray for any members experiencing difficulties with work. God, you have given us a calling to work and to do all things as unto you. May we find joy in our work as we give our efforts to you. But Lord, you have also given us the Sabbath and a time to rest from our work. May we find rest in you as we rest from our work. God, help the members of this church to walk faithfully as members of your kingdom. Give us what we need each day and help us as we battle against the evil that lurks in our own lives. You have given us victory and new life by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And may our faith be increased as we follow you this week. We pray also for the members of our church working with the foster care system. We are thankful for disciples answering the call to minister to the most vulnerable in our community. We pray that you would encourage them through the joys and the heartaches of working in that difficult system. As a church, may you give us wisdom on how we can support them with practical needs and prayer. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in the lives of these children. And may we have ears to hear the gospel proclaimed this morning and may it bring conviction and encouragement to our souls. Would you be with Hans as he preaches, just as you were with him as he prepared this week? Blessed are you, God, to receive glory and honor and praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. You can have a seat and open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 11. And we are covering 14 verses today of intense and deep symbolism, so I hope you are prepared to do some work in the scripture. These last two weeks, we find ourselves watching yet another seemingly earth-shattering global event. I saw a headline last week that said, first pandemic, then recession, now Russia invades Ukraine. Anything else, world? The last three years have seemed like a roller coaster of events, but never with a lull. Seemingly, it has been one stress-induced event and turn after another. And with each new turn on this insane roller coaster of world events, news headlines and comments from people inside and outside the church make it seem as though many expect that the church should be adjusting and changing in kind to these seeming world events as if its mission is dictated by the most pressing and immediate earthly crisis, that the mission of the church should change depending upon what is happening around it. And across the news, you see suggestions of what the church should be doing and how it is falling short in addressing the key issues of the day, as if the job of the church is to fix the world that wants nothing to do with the church. And it is true to an extent that the church should be a practical help to the surrounding world in times of trouble. That's absolutely true. But all of this has led many Christians and pastors and churches to feel hopeless 
and powerless in the midst of so much that they have no control over. And it's even led to some people saying, well, what is the point? If the church can't fix the world that wants nothing to do with it, what's the point? You guys ever feel like that a little bit? Well, what I want to propose to you today through the text in which we find ourselves in Revelation is that the mission of the church does not, in fact, change with every new disaster or social plight. And I want to encourage us that the Bible is actually quite clear on what the job of the church as a whole, and therefore every local church, is to be in the midst of whatever earth-shaking events are occurring. Remember that our text of Revelation, and specifically our text this morning, was given primarily to the first century church, and secondarily to every generation of the church thereafter, to comfort, to prepare, uh, to give a focused mission for exactly the time when the world seems to be in the most chaos. But we will also see in our text this morning that if we fulfill our primary mission of preaching the true gospel of Christ, most likely, if we're doing it correct, we will be hated for it, even to the point of persecution and possible martyrdom. And you might say, Hans, not in the United States. That might be true within our generation. But most of the Christian church across the world understands what I'm saying. And all the while, even though we will be hated for it, even though there's the possibility of martyrdom and persecution, our text this morning will tell us very clearly that Christ will protect our faith in the midst of this, and give us the hope of vindication at the final resurrection and judgment to come. And so this morning, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 11 is the protected yet persecuted prophetic witness of the church. The protected yet persecuted prophetic witness of the church. This passage is possibly one of the most important passages in all of Revelation because it will give us a firm foundation and firm mission statement that no matter, no matter what happens this week or years into the future, we can stay calm and carry on as Christ intended. Some commentators call this section the crux interpretum, which means it is the crux of interpretation for the entirety of the book. And so I'm excited to take us through it. Well, let's begin by reading through our passage in Revelation 11, 1 through 14. And let's take a look at the visions that John will give us. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The symbolism is getting more and more complex, is it not? We read this and we think, what is this saying? But if we unpack it carefully, 
The first thing that we will see is the temple as the protected and yet persecuted new covenant people of God. The temple as the protected and yet persecuted new covenant people of God. In chapter 10, we saw the commissioning of John as a prophet, much like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. And it's with this background theme of Old Testament prophets that we roll into and enter into chapter 11. We saw that in the language that was used in describing that commission of John, it was specifically likened to Ezekiel. Nick showed us that last week. And just so you know, you can probably find Ezekiel right now in your Bible and put a finger in it because we're going to be dwelling in it a lot in comparison to Revelation 11. What we saw specifically, though, you can just look up on the screen in Ezekiel 3, was this imagery that you'll find in uh, Revelation 10. This is from Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. He said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And if you were here last week, you recall that this is almost exactly the same wording that John uses and the imagery that John uses. And so we roll into chapter 11 with this idea. And this connection is extremely important to understand because it calls our minds to the context of the book and structure of Ezekiel as we then move into chapter 11. John took the scroll and ate it like Ezekiel. And then right at the beginning of chapter 11, we find John, who suddenly finds himself at God's temple, measuring it. And for those of you that have read Ezekiel before, you realize that this too is reminiscent of the book of Ezekiel. In fact, the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel is an overly detailed description of a temple, a new temple. Now, I'm not going to make us read the entirety of those nine chapters, or else we'd be here a while, but let's just look at Ezekiel 40, verses 3 through 4. Ezekiel says, When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Yeah. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And then he goes on through chapter 48 in intense detail. I mean, we are talking intense detail. If you haven't read it before, you can turn there and just get a quick glimpse. It talks about all of the architectural plans. Now, these nine chapters in Ezekiel are very dense, but it's a section that many find difficult when reading through the whole Bible because you get to the end of it and you wonder, what was the point of that? Why was this there? And you are not alone. Scholars have long debated what this temple is. I've sat in classes with people far smarter than me saying, I don't know, it's kind of crazy, right? Why was it there? For at the time of Ezekiel, uh, while Israel was in exile in Babylon, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And this temple in Ezekiel bears no resemblance to Solomon's. The one in Ezekiel is much larger, for example. And it also bears little resemblance to Herod's temple that was in, ex in existence during the time of Christ. So when and where will this temple of Ezekiel and this temple that is discussed in chapter 11, where will it exist? Where will it be? Well, I think the context of our text tells us that, in fact, this temple is not one that will physically exist in the normal sense of a building, but it's one that will exist in that it's symbolic of the new covenant people of God, the church. It's symbolic of us. Now look, for example, at the obvious statement as to the location of this temple that John is measuring. Look ahead just a bit to Revelation eleven nineteen. It says, then God's temple in, where does it say? Heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Where's the temple? It's in the presence of God. The symbolism and imagery of a temple was, is, and always will be in biblical theology, a place where heaven and earth meet, where the abode of the holy God meets and overlaps with the abode of his creation. It is the place where sin has been dealt with and covenant faithfulness unifies God and his people. It is the place of God's presence with his people. When you see temple in your Bible, that's what you should be thinking about, the place where heaven and earth overlap and God dwells with his people. 
Now notice also that what John is asked to measure is the temple, the altar, and right there in uh, verse 1 it says, he will also measure those who worship there. Friends, that's people, not a building. Now this symbolism is further clarified a little bit further on. Take a look at Revelation 13, 6, either in your Bible or on the screen. When the uh, beast comes against the church, and we'll look at that symbolism in Revelation 13, it says that the beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Notice, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That word literally in the Greek is his tabernacle. And that is those who dwell in heaven. It tells us right there. The imagery of the temple is meant to discuss and describe those who are already seated with the Lord in heaven. Not just those who have died, friends, but those who are enrolled in the assembly of heaven. Who's that? It's us. It's the church across all generations and times and locales. It's the new covenant people of God. Now, because of this language, we know that the temple in Revelation 11, 1 through 2 is something other than a physical, earthly location and building. It is meant to be symbolic. And this symbolic interpretation would make sense, would it not, given all that the New Testament says around the topic of temple. Recall the timeline with me from the Old Testament to the New. Just do a quick survey of Scripture. The glory of God's presence is recorded as leaving the earthly temple in you guessed it, the book of Ezekiel. The Spirit of God leaves. And it would not again enter until Jesus came in the flesh. For it's in the book of John that the apostle says that God came in the flesh. You guys recall John 1.14. The Word, God himself, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there in the Greek is tabernacled. He tented. He took on a physical form. Jesus came, and he became the earthen vessel, or temple, if you will, of the glory of God. In Christ, heaven and earth met, and the abode of God was with man. Jesus was the temple of God while he walked on this earth. But then Jesus was crucified for your sin and mine. And with regard to his death and resurrection... Christ said in John 2.19, destroy this, what? Temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Three days after his death, Jesus rose from the grave and then imparted his Holy Spirit to his disciples. He took that same spirit, that dwelling of God that was in himself, and he imparted the Holy Spirit to the church, the new covenant people made up of both Jew and Gentile. This is at the end of John in John 20, 21 through 22, Jesus says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I'm doing what? Sending you, the church. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So now the church, the assembly of people who were forgiven and brought into the new covenant community of Jesus, they became and still are the place where the Spirit of God dwells with man. The people of the true church became and are his temple, the place where heaven and earth meet and the glory of God dwells. And in so doing, the church also became the true Jews, meaning the true covenant people of God, made up of all ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, all of whom are now able to draw near God's presence because we are the very temple of God. Now, friends, this makes tons of sense because this is how the New Testament writers referred to the people of the church, is it not? Now, I could give you myriads of quotes, but here is just one example for the sake of time from Paul to the local church at Corinth. Notice what he says. Do you not know that you are God's what? Temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Guys, that is not a statement about your exercise plan and what you should eat has that implication to a certain extent, but no, he's talking about the fact that you are where God's spirit dwells on this earth. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Think of the imagery used by Peter in our New Testament reading, that we are chosen and precious like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. And we are called to be priests within that house, that temple. 
Friends, the New Testament church is this temple. We are the place where heaven and earth meet, and the prophetic witness of God proceeds forth, and it is in our midst that worship in spirit and in truth should take place as we love one another as Christ first loved us and as we proclaim the one true gospel. Now, this then gives us clarity on what it means that John, here in Revelation 11, is called to measure the temple and those who worship in it. It means that the true church of God is sealed and safe and protected. We've been measured out, which is idiomatic throughout the Bible, for care. We've been measured out in our relationship with him. His church is in his presence and cannot be removed. And so, just as we saw the sealing of the symbolic army of God's Israel, his new covenant people in chapter 7, here we see a similar spiritual sealing and protection. This protection is at the level of connection and worship to God. Friends, your relationship with Christ, if you are in Christ, will never be destroyed. It cannot be hindered. Isn't that good news? No matter what Satan attempts, no matter what comes against you, no matter what doubts you have, even your own doubts cannot overcome the fact that Christ has saved you. No matter what suffering or persecution occurs on earth, those who are truly in Christ can be assured that our faith and hope of resurrection of eternal life will remain secure. And this is the message here, as well as in the nine chapters of Ezekiel 40 through 48. If you go and read it, you will wonder why all the detail on the temple if it's merely meant to symbolize the people of God in eternity. Well, dear brothers and sisters, it is with that same level of detail and intimate care that God our Father has crafted the redemptive plan and timeline of history. It is with that level of detail and intimate care that God has worked in each of your lives and the lives of all humanity to draw us to himself. The next time that you think that God might be distant or doesn't care about you or your life or this world, friends, remember the craftsmanship with which he has brought about the redemption of his people. Amen? But notice that the measuring also has a boundary there in chapter 11. The temple court is left out. Now, the imagery here is clear. This is a reference back to the structure of previous temples where you had successive boundaries where worshipers of Yahweh could still worship on holy ground of the temple court, but they were kept back from the fullness of worship in the Holy of Holies. You had the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of the women, the Jewish women, and, and so forth and so on, until you got all the way up to the temple doors. Now, they were allowed to worship in this courtyard, but it was from a distance, and there was a boundary that said, if you cross this, uh, you're, you're taking your life in your own hands. They knew that to draw any closer would first require death if they were to cross the boundary. And why can God not guarantee security here in the court in Revelation 11? Because it says it has been given over to the nations who will trample it underfoot. The biblical theology here is deep, but in summary, this is a statement that God's people, while eternally secure in their faith as the temple, they exist on an earth, we exist on an earth that has been handed over to the demonically backed nation states and earthly rulers. We exist in hostile territory as that temple of God. And this comes from multiple points in Daniel, you can go back and re-listen to those sermons, where various beasts are used symbolically to describe empires and governments of the earth. And these beasts will trample roughshod over the people of God for a set time. That's what the 42 months and the 1,260 days is referring to. It is a set time that God in his sovereignty has set. Now, God's new covenant people, his temple, where heaven and earth meet, are those that are protected eternally. And yet, while on earth, the church will be persecuted, even trampled under the demonically backed governments and people groups that rule the earth. This was true for the original audience of this letter in the first century under Rome, and this is true under the governments of the 21st century to differing degrees. 
And it will be true until Christ's return for judgment. And so here, right away, in these first two verses, what we see is the temple as the protected and yet persecuted new covenant people of God. But just as in chapter 7, we move from their protection to their task. In chapter 7, we saw their task was worship. But here what we will see is that the task of the church is something else. It's the prophetic witness of the gospel. That's the mission of the church. In verses 3 through 6, we see the prophetic witness of the gospel as the mission of the church. Let's look at those verses again. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now recall that John has made this a habit now in Revelation, especially in the last few chapters. Rather than seeing completely different events or objects whenever the symbols change, we have seen how he likes to morph from one image to another, but still speaking about the same subject. He does this to give the vision and the symbolism increasing depth and weight. And so we see movement from imagery of a temple to imagery of two specific witnesses. And as the vision continues, we see that they have a spirit about them that resembles Old Testament prophets. Well, what are they doing in the New Testament here? Well, friends, this is not a completely new vision from the temple. These two witnesses are, like the temple, symbols of the church throughout the church age until the return of Christ. Now, the context and symbolism used here really gives us no other possible conclusion. Friends, this is not two dudes in togas on C-SPAN breathing fire on people. Okay? That's not what this is. Now, remember that first and foremost, prophets of the Old Testament, if you didn't get that reference, it means you haven't read the Left Behind books. <laughs> I saw some stunned looks in the audience. That's all I was talking about. You're like, where's that? I don't see that in here. You're right. You don't see that in here. It's in the Left Behind books. All right. Now, remember... Now that we got that out of our system, remember that first and foremost, prophets of the Old Testament acted as covenant and Torah lawyers sent as delegates in the authority of God. When you see the prophets, think of them as covenant lawyers. Their job in preaching to the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the few pagan nations to whom they were sent was to first call to repentance to draw them to Yahweh, but if not to prosecute those rebelling against the covenant law of their creator God. This is what Nick was referring to last week as foretelling. Foretelling, seeing things in the future, was part of their job too, but telling events that will happen in the future is merely meant to give weight and authority to the foretelling statements, to give them clout and authority. Now, a wonderful example of this commission to come and bring a witness or a conviction, almost as if it's a Torah lawyer, against the people is again found in Ezekiel. Uh, look at this on the screen, Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give them no warning... Nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life? That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. I wonder what that says to the church that's fearful of telling people to repent. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. That's heavy for a church that hates to tell people that they're going to hell. God says clearly, if you, as my prophetic witness, shy away from warning the wicked, then you will be guilty. 
But if you rightly act as the Torah covenant lawyers that I have sent, and they refuse the summons you have given them to Yahweh, then their wickedness will be on their own head. Now, this legal proceeding in courtroom-like imagery is taken even further when we recall where the idea of two witnesses comes from. Remember that at least two witnesses was the requirement of Levitical law to bring conviction. This is from Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see, the church symbolized by these two prophet-like witnesses is going to act at the day of judgment as prosecuting attorney, bringing the charges and acting as witnesses of the offense before, notice it, the Lord of the earth. That's in verse 4. Now, Jesus is the judge who hears the cries throughout Revelation, throughout the world, throughout time of his covenant people in lament, symbolized by the very clothing that these two are wearing. Notice verse 3, it says they're clothed in sackcloth. They're in mourning. Why? Because of the persecution and martyrdom that they're watching around them. And this idea and theme has been throughout Revelation. Uh, the saints crying out from under the altar. The saints giving prayers that are used to fuel the fire of incense that then gets acted out on earth. God sees the pain of his covenant people as they are trampled underfoot. And during their time on this earth, during our time on this earth, every generation of the church, in rightly preaching the gospel, is acting as witness and prophet to first draw those who will hear the call of their shepherd. That is what we hope for, and that is what we act for. And at the same time, declare to those who refuse that call to Christ that Christ will return as judge. We come to warn the world as well. Friends, this is where the word witness comes from. We understand it in trial-like language in the West, a witness sitting in the stand, but the word behind it in the Greek is the word from which we get the word martyr. If you were to read Revelation 11, in the Greek, you would see the word to martyrs, martisan. The church, symbolized by these two, are to act as witnesses against the wicked by the testimony of their persecution and martyrdom. Now, preaching the word of God, and specifically the gospel, always has these same two purposes. First, to soften the heart of the saint, of the one who's elect, who's been converted by the Spirit of God. But secondly, the preaching of the gospel is also intended to harden the hearts of the rebellious. And the nature of this double-edged sword of the gospel is laid out in the imagery that follows. You see, friends, many of you, I think, you, you think you're unsuccessful in preaching the word because you preach it one time, somebody doesn't immediately come to Christ and you say, I'm not cut out for this. But friends, faithful gospel witness is to just preach and the Lord will either harden the heart or save the person. Your job is just to preach. We'll see that as we continue in this imagery. In verse 4, imagery from Zechariah is brought up. He talks about two olive trees, two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And this comes directly out of Zechariah 4 that we've looked at previously in Revelation. It was brought up in chapters 2 and 3, talking about the lampstands of the church. But would you turn with me there? Turn with me in your Bible to Zechariah 4. Uh, and we're going to take a look at the intertwining imagery as it connects here to Revelation. Zechariah 4. To remind you of what's happening here in Zechariah 4, Zechariah is prophesying after Israel has returned from exile, and there are two primary leaders in Israel who are attempting, against all odds, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Funny, talking about a temple, right? And so Zechariah has this vision that shows the lampstand of God's temple being rebuilt by two men. Now, why is it a lampstand? Because from the temple, the glory of God shined to the world. And these two men that are rebuilding it are known and named in this section as uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Great name for those of you expecting children, Zerubbabel 
okay? Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, it's as if they are olive trees here in chapter 4, producing olive oil that will provide fuel for the lamp of God's temple. Now, notice the wording specifically in verses 8 through 10. Take a look there, verses 8 through 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, speaking of the temple. His hands shall also complete it. Now, God was giving this to them as an encouragement because they're like, man, how are we ever going to get this done? He says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, another measuring uh, tool here. Okay? Now, this is specifically what is being talked about in Revelation 11 as well. Zerubbabel here is pictured as one ready to measure the temple being built. In Revelation, what's happening? John is picturing the temple that is being built. Now, John is playing off of all this intertwining imagery to symbolize the church as both the temple and the witnesses. And one of the two-pronged commissions of the church in being the prophetic witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to first build the temple. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on in Revelation 11. To build the church of God's new covenant people who are the place where heaven meets earth and the spirit of God dwells. Friends, as we go throughout the world and preach the gospel, remember, that's not just my job or the elder's job. That's all of our job. As we go throughout the world preaching the gospel, God's spirit converts the lost, bringing them to repentance. This is our primary job, and this is what we celebrate, amen? When we see people converted. And we as the church then recognize this conversion by baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And then, according to Christ's command, we teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And we preach and teach Scripture because Scripture functions as the instrument of Christ's lordship over his followers. You know you're under Christ's lordship because you love this word, you devour this word, you want to know this word, you want to take it into your heart. And so this is how we walk in that lordship. And in all of this, we are participating with God as he builds his temple. We're not doing the work, we're just simply participating. It's kind of like the picture when my kids were really tiny and I would do woodworking. They'd participate, but I was really the one doing the work. That's kind of like us, right? I'll help you, Jesus, and he uses us, but he's doing the work. Now, this is the action of the true faithful church of Christ, is that we go and we simply preach and we leave the rest up to the Lord. But then go back with me to Revelation 11 and see the other side of what preaching the gospel and prophetic witness accomplishes. Because, friends, even if the person doesn't turn on a dime and show their conversion that has already occurred, the word will not return void. It is still successful. Look at verses 5 and 6. If anyone would harm these witnesses, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Very interesting here. Here we're given very clear imagery that the church also acts like the prophets Elijah and Moses. That's what is con uh, continued in verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It was Elijah that brought fire down from heaven on the idolatrous enemies of God at Mount Carmel. The book of James tells us that he shut the sky so that no rain would fall for, guess how long? Three years and six months, also known as 1,260 days in the Jewish calendar. It was Moses that brought forth plagues on the idolatrous enemies of God as he struck Egypt and its leader, Pharaoh, with ten plagues. One of which was, you guessed it, turning water into blood. These men hold a special place in God's redemptive history as pinnacles of his prophetic witness because they called for repentance first, which was refused by their hearers. And they therefore acted as witnesses when the judgment of God came forth. Friends, we are similarly called to be God's prophetic witness. Out of the mouth of the church comes the gospel, and it will either draw to repentance through the summons of Christ, or it will land as future judgment 
at the judgment seat of Christ. As we preach the ordinary gospel by ordinary means of evangelism, the sweetness of the good news of God's redemptive work will draw his saints to him, those who have been converted. But to those who refuse his summons to accept his forgiveness and submit to his lordship, it will cause hardness of heart. Friends, think about it this way. We've gotten into this idea. We were just at a conference this weekend, and they were talking about the idea of decisions versus response. We've gotten into this idea over the last 50, 60 years of make a decision for Christ. But that's not what Christ does when he preaches the gospel. It's more like when a parent summons a child. They don't have an option to say to their parent, you know, I'll make a decision about that later in life. I'm going to just put that one on the back burner. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. No, for that child to not answer the summons is to rebelliously refuse and to harden their heart against the authority of their parent. And the more you refuse the ongoing summons, the more rebellious your heart becomes. To refuse this summons, and even worse, to hate God's church or persecute God's church because you want to refuse this summons is, in effect, storing up a future judgment that will end in the destruction of fiery doom. And what's amazing about this is at the same time gospel produces these two disparate results. They're both going out and happening from the same gospel. You don't have to preach differently on either end. You just simply speak the gospel and both things happen. We don't have to make it sound sweet to the saint, just like we don't have to make it sound bitter to the unrepentant. We simply have to be faithful in pronouncing the gospel that has captured our own hearts. And the sovereign work of God, by his Holy Spirit, he'll take it and do the rest. The question is, dear saints, are you faithful to open your mouth in proclaiming this gospel to those around you? Are you faithful in doing that? For it is this very purpose for which you were saved. Contrary to popular opinion, you were not saved so you can go to heaven when you die. You are saved to preach the gospel. Remember what we read earlier in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's your purpose statement, friends. Amen. But so many Christians mute themselves outright. I'm not, I'm not really trained to evangelize. That's not my gift. What if I make a mistake? What if I misspeak and I don't say it perfectly? Isn't that the pastor's job? What if I offend and they cut off relationship with me? I mean, after all, I don't want to lose my family member or my friend. Friends, every one of you already has the means and the empowerment and the courage and the content and the knowledge to fulfill your God-given mission to be a prophetic witness to the nations. You already have it. You have it because you have the gospel and you have the Holy Spirit. You simply speak out of the same message that converted your heart to submission under Christ's loving redemption, and you have been faithful to preach the gospel. And friends, that message is that God is our ultimate authority and creator. He created us to be in covenant relationship with him, and yet we as humanity responded by rebelling against him in sin. But the good news is that he is so faithful in his love for his creation. He's so faithful that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place as a substitute for your sin and mine. And he proved that it was effective by his resurrection three days later. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit into his church that we might summon the world to him as Lord. And he sprinkled his church throughout the nations. And to respond to that summons is to first repent from your sins and proclaim our union with Christ through baptism into his covenant people. We then move forward progressively learning what it is to walk under the lordship of his word and spirit. And all of this will come to a conclusion in the future resurrection 
and eternal life where Christ judges the wicked and restores creation so that we might live with him for all eternity. This is the true gospel. It is the ordinary gospel. It is the powerful gospel. Friend, if you've been converted by this truth, you know this truth. You're equipped with this truth, and you can do it faithfully. God will do the rest. Now, here's the hard part. Some of you may experience the beautiful blessing of seeing that message grow to fruition in a converted heart. Uh, Some of you, even in this room, you've walked with somebody through their conversion. And for any of you that have walked through that process with someone, it is beyond compare, is it not? Praise God. But our text today also says that we need to be ready for the same gospel summons to be refused, especially as time moves forward toward Christ's second return. And friends, that is heartbreaking when it's refused. But many of us then incorrectly feel like failures. We think, oh, if I'd been better prepared or more eloquent or more convincing or maybe if I went to seminary for four years or something, maybe then that person would have been converted. But friends, the encouragement I want to give you today is that that is not how it works. And if we let ourselves be overtaken by our anxiety around being unsuccessful in evangelism, we will find ourselves massaging and twisting the gospel to make it palatable and marketable. And then we will have no gospel whatsoever. We will find ourselves leaving out the hard parts of the gospel, like the fact that we are all sinners in need of salvation, or that Christ is coming again to judge sin. We'll make up some weird language and just parrot the idea that it's just about God's uncommon love. Don't worry about the sin part, right? Brothers and sisters, please recognize that the true gospel will be offensive to those that are against Christ. But it will also be sweet, good news to those who have been called to repentance and obedience. You don't know. Yours is simply to be faithful to the task. Our commission is to proclaim the gospel by which we were saved. And it is simply to proclaim that clear gospel of God's creation, man's sin, and Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection and our response to that summons. There's a very simple outline that one of the speakers talked about this weekend that I loved. God's creation, man's sin, Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection and our response to the summons. That's all you need to know. Brothers and sisters, are you faithful to the commission God has given you as his prophetic witness to the world around you? Today, this word should empower and encourage those of us who know and walk in the fact that it is not the outcome of our evangelism that declares we are a success, but it's merely our faithfulness. And this word should also convict those of us in this room who, because of the fear of man or love of self, refuse to act in that God-given commission to be a prophetic witness to the world. Brother, sister, if what is holding you back from preaching the gospel is fear of your own inadequacy, please trust that if Christ has saved you by his gospel, then you have what you need to evangelize the lost. Just practice. Practice preaching the gospel to yourself and to those in this church regularly every day. And then pray for God to open up opportunities for you to speak that same gospel to the lost. You see, we practice preaching the gospel in here to one another to encourage each other. And then we go out there to proclaim it to the lost. And then it's easy. It's like breathing or walking. But if something else is holding you back from preaching the gospel, then perhaps repentance is in order today. And so what holds you back? Is it fear of being hated? Fear of losing the relationship? Is it fear of being persecuted in some way? Is it fear of being seen by the world as a crazy prophet? If that is the case, perhaps you need to ask yourself the question of if the gospel has truly taken hold of your own life. For when we receive the good news of Jesus Christ, we will not be able to keep from proclaiming it to those around us because we know that if we do, they will end up far from their creator God. And that desire and affection for Christ will so outweigh any potential danger or harm that we will gladly accept the hatred of the world. Because remember, we are not hated because we are hateful in our message. Let me say that again. We are not hated because we are hateful in our message. If we are, we are not preaching the gospel. We are simply preaching the truthful gospel of man's rebellion and Christ as Savior and Lord. 
But Christ told us that if we do this, if we preach the ordinary gospel, we will be hated. The world, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. For the original audience of Revelation in the first century, especially since they were underdogs in society, and for many Christians around the world, this proves true in martyrdom. But at the very least, it will prove true for all of us in that the world will often hate us for the message of the gospel. And we see this next in our text as we see Christ and his church will seem to suffer an earthly defeat. Christ and his church will seem to suffer an earthly defeat. Take a look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. As we saw in the fifth and sixth seals and the fifth and sixth trumpets, towards the end of the church age, Satan and his demonic horde will be released to a greater degree. Could be happening now, we don't know. In chapter 9 especially, we discuss this idea of the power of the gospel and its effect in binding, binding up the power of the demonic entities to do damage on earth. And as the gospel is preached more and more throughout the world, the lordship of Christ takes root in the heart of many, and therefore the demonic has less ability to wreak havoc on the earth. But towards the end of the church age, the imagery given to us throughout the New Testament, especially in Revelation, is that the church will begin to dwindle, and less and less people will come to know Christ because their hearts will be hardened. As the gospel has less breadth of effect, the demonic will again seem to grow in power. And this imagery comes in here again as the testimony of the witnesses, symbolizing the church, comes to a close. And as the last martyrs of the faith are drawn to Christ, the beast comes from that same holding place as the demonic destroyer in chapter 9 from the abyss or the bottomless pit. And notice he comes to make war on them and kill them. And here again, we see that the two symbolizing, uh, we see that the two symbolizing the great army of the church makes more sense when we use the term war. He's not coming to war against just two. He's coming to war against the entirety of the church. And notice the beast is seemingly victorious over the defeat in the church. This language comes directly from the beastly imagery of Daniel in Daniel 7.21. Daniel sees a very similar vision. He says, I looked, this horn, and remember from Daniel that symbolizes an authority of a beast, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now, the people of the earth, the earth dwellers, rejoice at the earthly death of the witnesses. Why? Because to hear their constant prophetic witness was a torment. They even make merry and exchange gifts at the death of these witnesses. They leave their dead bodies in the street as a sign of disrespect and honor. Friends, we see this attitude in the world already, don't we? The belief that if religion and especially biblical Christianity would just go away, finally there would be peace. Why is it that the world celebrates every time a Christian falters or a church closes its doors or a leader deconstructs their faith? To the world in rebellion against God, that is one less tormentor, and they rejoice. Now, perhaps this is speaking that there will come a day directly prior to the resurrection and judgment at Christ's return where the true church will dwindle to such small numbers that it seems as if the church is dead and gone. That does not contradict Christ's statement that the church will never be destroyed, because remember, we're eternal. But maybe there's an even deeper statement here, for we see here in verses 7 through 10 the very story of Christ. For your sake and mine, at the appointed time when Christ had finished his testimony and earthly ministry, God allowed a satanically empowered humanity of Jews and Gentiles to overcome and defeat Christ at the cross of Calvary. This was the ultimate act of war on the part of the adversary of God. Christ was stripped bare, he was whipped, he was humiliated and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem to be executed in the ultimate act of dishonor, nailed naked to the cross. And to use the phrase where the Lord was crucified in verse 8 seems to point to the physical location of Jerusalem, but notice the combination of names there, Sodom, Egypt, and the inference of Jerusalem. All places in which God's judgment came 
because of a lack of repentance when God sent his people with prophetic witness. And notice the contrast of the temple in verse 2 being called the holy city. Notice that right at the end of verse 2, the holy city. And this place of humiliation for the church in verse 8 is called the great city. As we will see as we continue in Revelation, this is using the imagery of the two cities that is present throughout Scripture. The city of the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, and the city of Babylon, the harlot. Here in Revelation 11, Christ was crucified in the physical location of Jerusalem, yes, but ultimately he was crucified in the midst of symbolic Babylon, the ultimate symbol of the rebellious community of unrepentant humanity. This same unrepentant humanity is pictured in the phrase that these people that celebrate the death of the two witnesses come from peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. Just as the worshiping community pictured in heaven is diverse in its number, so is the rebellious community of the earth dwellers, hell-bent on denying the lordship of Christ. Now, what an encouragement this would have been to the first century Christians suffering persecution and martyrdom at the hands of Rome. It would have reminded them that they were walking in the very path laid out by their Savior. And what an encouragement to every other generation of persecuted believers. Remember that encouragement is a word that means to give someone courage to stand up in the midst of suffering. And we are given courage when we realize that persecution and even martyrdom are part of the plan. They are not a sign that God is weak or losing. They are part of the plan. The very people we are compassionately trying to reach with the gospel will hate us even to the point that they could take our very lives but they will not ever take our eternal security in Christ. They can never stand between us and Jesus Christ who died so that we might be one with him. But friends, this begs the question, what persecution do we suffer in Salem, Oregon in 2022? If this is what the church goes through, what are we going through? Friend, do you ever see persecution? Perhaps not death at the hand of a sword, but do you ever see hatred or even mere dislike because you represent Christ and proclaim his gospel in a world that hates him? Perhaps your witness is far too subdued. Do you ever experience hatred because you have spoken truth and love to someone who is in rebellion against God? Or are you holding back because of your fear of man? If not, I want to ask the question of whether or not you are participating in the prophetic witness of the church. Now, this is a difficult mission that we have been given, but it is one we are empowered to complete. And when we lose heart at the task, we can simply remember the hope that we have been given. Yes, we will be persecuted, maybe even to the point of martyrdom, but we have been given a hope beyond that. And we see that next in our last point and the last portion of this text and that the church will resurrect in vindicated glory at the final judgment. The church will resurrect in vindicated glory at the final judgment. In chapter 10, as a representative of the church, John was given the little scroll that was a miniature replica, if you will, of the larger scroll opened by the Lamb on the throne in chapter 5. A picture of the fact that while Christ accomplished all of redemption on his own on the cross we are called to a similar life of self-sacrifice and prophetic witness and eventually death and resurrection. Just as the church will suffer in persecution and possibly martyrdom with Christ, we also will rejoice in resurrection and eternal life with Christ. This is the meaning behind many statements in the New Testament. Here's one in particular, Romans 8.17. Paul says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. The imagery of standing in the path of Christ also has with it the idea that we will be resurrected. We will not only suffer with him, we will also raise with him. And so here in chapter 11, there's imagery of the dead witnesses will stand upon their feet. And this is taken specifically from an Old Testament book. <laughs> Can I ask you to guess where? Ezekiel 37, would you turn there with me? Turn there with me. 
Ezekiel 37. The vision given to Ezekiel here is a vision that symbolizes, you can go read the full chapter on your own this week, it's a, a, a vision that symbolizes the general resurrection that will occur at the end of days. He begins by seeing a valley full of dry bones, and those bones will be partially brought back to life. But then look at verses 7 through 13. Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them. Sounds kind of like a horror movie. And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Tons of imagery from Revelation should be pouring through your mind right now. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. What is that talking about? It's talking about resurrection. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Now, this intertwines beautifully with the imagery of the vision in Revelation 11. Turn back there with me. Revelation 11. The church is the true Israel of God. We've been looking at that throughout the book of Revelation, made up of ethnic Jews and Gentiles. It is not replacing the Jews. It is bringing the Jews and Gentiles and putting them together in the one covenant people of God. And chapter 11, like Ezekiel 37, is looking forward to the resurrection the resurrection to new life when the abode of God fully becomes the abode of man at the day of resurrection and judgment. Now here in verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 11, it says the same thing. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered the two witnesses. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. You see, this resurrection happens and the slain saints that witness to the rebellious world are brought to life. This is what will happen to us. And the result is that great fear falls upon the wicked because they know that their effort to dismiss and rebel against their creator has brought judgment upon them. Friends, there will be nothing that wakes up the wicked world like the resurrection of the saints. And God will then bring his people into his loving care and presence symbolized by the call into the clouds. Now, friends, if you are familiar with the idea of the secret rapture of the church, that is not what this is, because notice, the entire world sees it. Nobody goes, gee, what happened to those people? They're all like, there go those people. Dang it! That's what's happening. They see it, right? There's no secret rapture here. This is the resurrection and judgment to come at the end of days. And it's at this point that the great city of human rebellion, the community of all wicked humanity, comes to judgment. It's symbolized by an earthquake that comes upon them, symbolizing that impending judgment and bringing the death that they have been storing up for themselves. Now, all of this disaster causes those left on the earth in unrepentance to suffer terror, and they finally cry out in submission, not a willful submission, but a terror submission. They cry out the truth that God of heaven is indeed the judge. This statement that they gave glory to God is not one that automatically means submitted worship. It is one that means they finally spoke the truth that they are the judged creation and God is the glorified creator. In no way is this meaning that they finally repent and avoid judgment. And it says in verse 14, the second woe has passed and behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, friends, I know we poured through a lot and I still went way over time. You're going to be able to go back and reread some of these verses I gave you and some of these sections, and the imagery is going to come together even tighter for you. But here's what I want to leave you with. This vision so perfectly captures the mission and prophetic witness and persecution and hope of all saints throughout the church age that it can't help but bring us both encouragement and conviction. 
Conviction that we need to be faithful to the mission we have been given to be a prophetic witness in this age, no matter the hatred or persecution that comes against us. And it should give us great encouragement that we have all we need to be that witness. And when we are hated because of it, we have nothing to fear, for even death has no hold on us. And friends, for additional study this week, if you want to, you can go back and you can reread the stories of Moses and Elijah. And if you think to yourself, I have to be more eloquent and more capable in my preaching of the gospel, remember, Moses was so scared of talking that he had to have his brother do it for him. And if you go back and read Elijah's prayer, you'll see the prophets of Baal, they're very eloquent, but it doesn't do anything. And then Elijah's like, hey, God, would you bring down some fire? Cool, thanks. Not eloquent at all, but powerful. You have all you need. Go be his witnesses and recognize that no matter what comes against you, you have eternal life as your hope. Friends, are you building the temple of Christ, honing one another as living stones by regularly proclaiming the gospel of Christ to one another? Are you fulfilling your call to proclaim that same gospel to the lost world and individuals around you? Each one of us individually and collectively as a covenant community of disciples, we are called to be the protected yet persecuted prophetic witness of Christ. And so let's answer that commission as we go forth from this place. May the people of God, the temple of God, the very witnesses of God have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning.